Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Over the past 40 years, children born to parents without college degrees have become less and less likely to grow up with the advantages of a two-parent home. This trend is perpetuating inequality between college-educated and non-college-educated families. To talk about this issue, I've invited on Melissa Carty. Melissa is the Neil Moskowitz Professor of Economics at the University of Maryland. Her new book is The Two-Parent Privilege, How the Decline in Marriage Has Increased Inequality and Lowered Social Mobility, and What We Can Do About It. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Marriage rates in the United States have declined significantly, especially among those without a college degree. And this decline has disrupted the traditional link between marriage and childbearing. What are the what are the reasons driving this that you find to be empirically persuasive? And what are the ones that people often may often bring up that you think actually don't have much substance? All right, we are just diving into the probably the most difficult question to answer, right? Why has marriage declined? I Let me just be clear first. I focus on the decline in marriage because the rise in the share of kids or the high number of kids in the U.S. living outside a two-parent home really is about this debundling of marriage from having and raising kids as opposed to an increase in divorce or an increase in birth rates to groups that historically have had high rates of single parenthood. So this is why it becomes so important to figure out what is driving the decline in marriage. The short answer where I land reviewing all the data and evidence is that it's both a reflection of economic changes and social changes. And how I land there is in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of social changes in the U.S., normalization of you know, different gender roles, a less of an emphasis on marriage, that became acceptable. We saw marriage decline essentially among all Americans, regardless of education. And then there was this really noteworthy divergence in the 80s and 90s, where college-educated adults, parents in particular, continued to get married at the same rates and marriage continued to decline among everybody else. Well, what happened in the 80s and 90s? Against this new backdrop of more of a social acceptance of non-marriage and non-marital births, you saw a whole bunch of economic shocks that really disadvantaged men without a college degree, both in an absolute sense, but also relative to women. And so over these decades, women became more likely to earn as much as men. Men became less likely to be stably employed, have high earnings. And so what you have is the what I refer to as like the economic value proposition of marriage was eroded, again, among adults without a college degree. And we saw that what happened was marriage rates declined for these groups where we saw men hardest hit by economic shocks. And there's a real correspondence in trends between men experiencing disruptions, negative disruptions in the labor market, and a decrease in marriage and an increase in the share of kids living in single parent homes. And economists have done some really great work showing that there's a causal link there. 
But it's again, it's really not just economics. The social context really matters here. Were there other are there other reasons people give for this that you found don't seem to have much basis? Well, here's here's one supposition that seems not to be true. What doesn't appear to be true is that Americans in large numbers have rejected the institution of marriage. So it's certainly the case that Americans think it's less important than it used to be. But if you look at the ethnographic work or surveys of less educated Americans, and I'm thinking, again, in particular among unmarried parents, you don't see a lot of evidence saying, no, I don't want to be married. More likely what you see is, you know, from interviews with unmarried parents, again, mostly low income, they say, yes, they want to be married, but there's a lot of expectations around marriage, right? They want somebody who's a really a stable partner, uh, a financial provider. It's almost like the bar for finding a marriage partner is higher than the bar for finding someone to have a kid with. And and the other, I mean, here here's a point in reading a lot of this qualitative work that I've changed my mind a bit on the importance of sort of relationship education among these populations. A lot of these couples say they want to be, they want to be together, they want to co-parent, but there's a lot of barriers to doing that. Many of them didn't grow up in married parent homes themselves. They're not surrounded by married parents. Their communities are communities that have a lot of single parent homes. And they're also, you know, as a couple facing a lot of struggles, whether it's lack of employment or mental health challenges or substance abuse. So anyway, I think that's important to keep in mind because it it doesn't suggest that people wholesale are rejecting marriage. Rather, they don't feel a lot of these couples, parents don't feel like they have all the pieces in place that in their mind would set them up for marriage. Kids who come from single parent homes, you find more likely to face economic hardship, academic behavioral problems, lower college completion rates, and then less stable marriages themselves, creating kind of a bad cycle here. Let me start off just by asking um, if there are two adults in the home, does it matter who they they are? Could it be the, you know, could it could it be the mom and the boyfriend, mom and the grandparent, mom and a stepfather? Does any of that stuff matter, or does it just matter that they're two stable people and maybe even two people with incomes? So how fine do we cut it here? Yeah, this is a really important question. And here's where I do both the best and worst of economics, I think, in that I try to move away from all those nitty gritty, complicated questions about the precise relationship. And I take a broad brush on this, which is just, are there two parents in the household? Well, first I start with, are there two parents in the household? And that is really tightly linked with whether there are married parents in the household. Because if parents aren't married, you really just don't have very many two-parent households. I'm essentially counting them up. And I don't work in the book to distinguish between whether those are two biological parents, whether they're same sex or different sex parents. I look at kids who have two parents, and that's really what I'm tracking. There is a lot of work, mostly from sociology, though there's some from economics, and there's also some from development psychology that looks at these more nuanced questions about relationships in general what those studies seem to indicate is that descriptively kids who live with two biological parents are best set up to have successful outcomes or do or do well. Um, step parents are, are a bit of a complicated issue in the sense that if a parent remarries, a lot of the income is replaced in the household. So in that sense, we see remarriage as a more protective 
household structure in terms of keeping households out of poverty, for instance, than single parent households. But step parents also are more likely than biological parents to engage in, well, you can start from the minor, which is less engaged parenting, but then there's also higher incidences of of, of sexual abuse, et cetera. And so mm-hmm. it gets very complicated very quickly once you start looking at the relationships. And I zoom out from a lot of that because really the main trend that I'm focused on and think it's important to highlight is just now what a large class divergence there is in this country and whether kids have two parents in their house as compared to one. Yeah. I mean, one reason I asked that, because I know when I've discussed this, people bring up what I call the Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn phenomenon. You know, these two Hollywood stars who have you know been together for decades, never married. And people will say, well, let's, you know, that, you know, what, what's wrong with that? I mean, they've been, the, you know, that those, that's two committed yeah. people. No, if that's what unmarried parents tended to look like, we would not be having this conversation. So the question about whether somebody cohabits or marries, that feels to me, again, because I'm taking this broad-based resource perspective, if two unmarried parents lived together and contributed both all their resources to raising their kid for 18 years, my economist resource-based perspective on this is it doesn't matter, right? I don't care. But in practice, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell are not what single parenthood looks like or unmarried parenthood looks like in this country. So then, uh, as you sort of allude to, the the, the mechanism here, because you're talking about step parents can replace the income, but may have some other issues. It's not just an income mechanism. That maybe is one, but what are what are what is sort of the portfolio? That's one. So I I focus on three big buckets of resource yeah. differences. Mm-hmm. The first is income, and income translates into spending. So we know two-parent higher-income families spend a lot more on their kids, things like education, enriching activities, things that sort of set them up for enriching, resource-filled childhoods. But there's also, let's just classify things into two big buckets, parental time and parental bandwidth. And so we know that kids from two-parent families get more time investment from their parents. We see this in nationally representative time use data. What does that mean in practice? That means they're more likely to have a parent spend time reading to them, helping them with their homework, driving them to activities, talking with them, all these things we know that are beneficial for kids' development and eventually their educational and economic outcomes and success. We also know that single-parent households are more likely to have evidence of of stress. There are different models, again, once you get into the nitty gritty of whether it's what development psychologists would call toxic stress or whether what behavioral economists might call limited cognitive bandwidth. But in practice, what, what does this mean? This means if you're the only parent in the house responsible for paying all the bills, taking care of everything in the household, raising your kids, watching your kids, helping your kids. That's a very stressful situation. And those parents are less likely to engage in what looks like nurturing parenting or the kind of parenting that development psychologists say is particularly beneficial for kids. Someone might write that off and say, well, single parents have different ideas about parenting. My my preferred explanation which is, you know, again, looking at like survey data, what do we see people say? 
Let's also use a little bit of common sense and reflection here, which I know is a dangerous thing to do as an economist, but it's hard to parent. And if you're the only one doing it, it's not surprising that you're more likely to be stressed out and don't have time to sit down and patiently negotiate or read to your child. And so I find the more compelling explanation is just that married parents are more likely to have more bandwidth and more emotional bandwidth to engage in this kind of positive parenting. So the three buckets, income, time, and emotional bandwidth. Why is this unique, if I'm right, more of a uniquely American problem? That's I mean, a lot of things that you mentioned, economic shocks and industrial economies, uh, you know, what it means to be a blue collar, all that, uh, you know, has affected other countries. So why is this happening here? Interestingly, we are starting to see a rise in non-marital childbearing and kids living in single mother households in other high income countries as well. They seem to be a little bit behind the U.S. on this. When I have spoken to economists and demographers in in you know from European countries, it's interesting the reaction I've gotten. A lot of them is like, "Oh, but this is considered sort of a feminist success story that now women are doing this on their own." Are you, people wouldn't take the view of this that you're taking? And and my reaction to that is. Give this 20 years and wait until you see the differences in class outcomes for kids. Like this this experiment has played out in the U.S. and it's not been good. It's not been good for the millions of moms who are doing this by themselves. And it's not good for the millions of dads who are sidelined from family life. And it's not good for the millions of kids who are growing up in under-resourced homes. So we are starting to see some of this happen in other countries. And when I look at the rates there, you see similar similarly to the U.S., the rise in kids living in single parent, mostly single mother households has happened to a much greater extent outside the most highly educated class. So again, there's this class to, there's this class element of it that really, I think sort of reflects and then amplifies and exaggerates the underlying inequality of it all. In recent years, there's been so much conversation about inequality and privilege, but the advantages of the two parent family don't seem to make it into the national conversation very often. Why do you think that is? Jim, this is exactly why I wrote the book, because I've been part of those conversations now for 20 years. And we we focus on all of these issues that I think are super important. Like what, how can we revive labor market institutions that, that address income inequality or, or, you know, push against some of the structural changes in economic forces that have widened income inequality? What can we do to improve schools that serve kids from lower income backgrounds? How can we expand access to college? But again, when you look at the data, and as you said, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm pulling on data and studies that have already been out there. When you look at it, you're like, hey, there's this huge thing here. We see that there's been this increased divergence in family structure, kids from one and two parent households have very different outcomes. That is a key contributor to gaps. Let's do something about that. And then the conversation doesn't really go anywhere. I think there's a few explanations. One, there's an unfortunate history in social science and policy discussions dating back to Daniel Patrick Moynihan's 1965 memo that have made it a bit of a third rail topic to talk about family structure. In the 60s, it was in, you know, closely tied with issues of race, race, and it started sounding like, or at least people were accused of sounding like they were blaming Black moms or the Black families for the high rates of single mother households in, in 
at the time, urban Black communities. Then it came back up in the 80s as a topic. And there was an unfortunate characterization of welfare queens. And again, it yeah. sounded like people were blaming the victim, blaming single moms for their predicament, predicament. If only they would make better choices, they wouldn't be in this situation. And I think that has made it very difficult for people to have this conversation without worries about sounding like they weren't being empathetic or blaming the victim um, or actually having the conversation in a productive way that actually took an empathetic view of it. I am, I wouldn't say naively because I went in with my eyes wide open, but I'm trying to resurrect that conversation in a way that just says, let's do this. Honestly, look at the data. We cannot deny this data. We cannot deny that kids from one versus two parent households have very different outcomes. We can't deny this huge class gap in it. This is going to be, if we allow this divergence in family structure to perpetuate without trying to disrupt it. We're just going to watch advantage and disadvantage perpetuate across the generations, right? This is just going to be a cycle we're stuck in. So we have to have this conversation. And I think we should be capable of doing this in a way that's empathetic and honest about the challenges and barriers facing a lot of couples and adults who have kids together without sounding like we're blaming the victim or, yeah. I I mean, I don't know you know, what the broader media coverage of this book has been. Um, but I, I I remember when the paper, uh, David Otter's paper, The China Trade Shock, The China Shock came out. And to this day, I mean, I that is a, that is a finding about the impact of, uh, of uh, greater Chinese import penetration and effect on certain communities. So this, I mean, I I hear it on a regular basis, covered widely across media, huge political impact. You have people on both sides drawing conclusions. And, and I'm wondering, is that going to happen to your book? The, the China shock paper is interesting because then there was a follow up paper, which is when work disappears, which is a reference to William Julius Wilson's work in the 80s. And that work says, oh, look, now let's look at the impact of the China shock on families Everybody focuses on the labor market impacts, as you say. Everybody cites that paper. Do you hear people as much cite the second paper, which is, oh, and in these communities that lost these well-paying manufacturing jobs for men without college degrees, look what happened. Marriage fell, and there's an increase in the share of kids living in single-parent households. That was part of their research agenda. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it is like once you get to family structure, everybody seems to shut down, and we just can't afford to do that. Um. I, I, I've seen, you know, a lot of especially, you know, uh, conservatives talk about uh, declining birth rates and what, you know, what we can do about that. And I've been generally sort of underwhelmed by the policy agendas making any significant decline. Is this a problem? Um, uh, to use the line from Shakespeare, uh, if no remedy, no regard, that there's no real remedy for this problem i mean you mentioned social acceptance that seems that seems a hard like a hard thing to change if now it's happening in europe if not fixable can you ameliorate it to some degree let's put it this way we have to ameliorate it okay we have to if we don't ameliorate this we are just resigning ourselves to a society of haves and have-nots where that perpetuates across the generation now some will say some on the left will say, no, what we need is a stronger safety net so that single mother families are better able to stay out of poverty. Sure, I'm all for that. Expand the, the child tax credit. 
don't put work requirements on Medicaid. I'm all for a strong safety net. I want more for kids than just not staying in poverty. And so, you know, are we ever realistically going to have the government make up for what a second parent in the house does? Their additional income of what, you know, let's say 50,000 to 150,000 a year, their time, their nurturing, their love. No, the government's never going to make up for this. So if we don't commit to strengthening families as a policy priority, we will continue to have millions of kids growing up without reaching their human potential because they're in under-resourced homes and frankly what they deserve, which is two parents investing in them. And we're going to have these wide class gaps that are intergenerationally passed down. But here's the thing. We've been talking about underperforming public schools in the U.S. for 50 years. We don't give up on them. We throw tons of money at them. We innovate. We try and think about ways to improve educational production. We have tons of money going to researchers to study it. We need to make strengthening families a policy priority. The Administration for Children and Families needs to have a much larger budget allocated to strengthening families. Right now, it's 1% of their budget as compared to 15% for foster care. So we know kids are from you know, homes that struggle. We spend more money taking kids out of their homes and placing them elsewhere than we do strengthening their families. We need some government funding agency to be willing to fund this work. It's not NIH. It's not the Department of Education. Where is it going to be that people need to research ways of improving families? And let's go back to a conversation we were having earlier. There are millions of adults out there who have kids together who would like to parent better, who would like to co-parent, who would like to be in healthy relationships. But they face all sorts of barriers. Why are we not spending a fortune and innovating and studying ways to reduce intimate partner violence, ways to help parents overcome their substance abuse and mental health struggles so they could be good parents? Why are we not spending way more money helping all of the families that have a parent in prison or returning from prison and how difficult that is? We can't just keep hiring school counselors and think that they're going to make up for these home life deficits, we have to actually consider strengthening families a, a priority. Are there any maybe small scale project experiments out there that you think look promising that could be scaled up? Do we have those kinds of at least green shoots? I hope somebody is listening to this that knows of evidence-based programs if you squint at some of the RT, RCT results, you can see some signs of promise. So for example, you know, this has been a positive shift. So in there was the Bush initiative, the Bush administration initiatives of promoting healthy marriages. And then the RCT showed that th those programs didn't work. Just promoting marriage didn't lead to higher rates of marriage. And so that sort of line of program implementation really shifted to promoting healthy families, responsible fatherhood. A lot of them have just very underwhelming results, I think because what becomes clear is there really are a lot of barriers. It's not just that these parents don't want to be together, but there are real barriers. And so the this, this signs seem to be, hey, we can't just have parenting classes for dads who want to be responsible. We sort of have to change the whole expectation of what can they contribute? What do the moms have to allow them to contribute, right? What can they do even if they're not stably employed? And that has to go hand in hand with improving their economic situation or addressing 
their barriers to employment because they have a criminal background or addressing any sort of mental health or substance abuse challenges they're dealing with. So I don't, I, unfortunately, I can't point to a program and say, hey, if we just increase their funding by 10 times, I think we could scale this up. But I think that's where we need to be pushing. And so another low hanging fruit is just remove all of the marriage disincentives all over the tax code and transfer program design. I don't think that either is going to dramatically turn things around. But all of this is part needs to be part of agenda of let's remove barriers, let's remove disincentives to marriage. Again, we have to actually, I think, stipulate that this is something we're aiming to achieve more kids in two-parent homes. And by the way, there's pushback just on that being the goal. It sounds very judgy. People are going to say you're you're judging people, you're judging different choices. Why should government be even, you know, putting a thumb on this on the scale? Um I I I I'm sure you've heard something like that. But the same people who, you know, a lot of the same people who say that are also really committed to let's say achieving equity and access to good health care. Well, why doesn't it bother you that the most advantaged groups in society are the ones who have access to this really protective family structure of two-parent households? I mean, I think we should view this in the same way we view all of these other impediments to equality across different race and ethnic groups and classes and realize that like achieving a two-parent home for kids is a really good thing for everybody. Figure out what the barriers are and commit ourselves to removing them. Once again, the book is The Two-Parent Privilege, How the Decline in Marriage Has Increased Inequality and Lowered Social Mobility and What We Can Do About It. Melissa, this was outstanding. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for the conversation and having me on.